Chapter Fifteen of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen. As David made his way with rapid strides through the rippling wheat, he experienced a series of sensations. For the first time since his wedding day, he was aroused to entirely forget himself and his pain. What did it mean? Marcia frightened. What at? Harry Temple at their house. What did he know of Harry Temple? Nothing beyond the mere fact that Hannah Heath had introduced him and that he was doing business in the town. But why had Mr. Temple visited the house? He could have no possible business with himself, David was sure. Moreover, he now remembered having seen the young man standing near the stable that morning when he took his seat in the coach, and knew that he must have heard his remark that he would not return till the late coach that night, or possibly not till the next day. He remembered as he said it that he had unconsciously studied Mr. Temple's face and noted its weak points. Did the young man then have a purpose in coming to the house during his absence? A great anger rose within him at the thought. There was one strange thing about David's thoughts. For the first time, he looked at himself in the light of Marcia's natural protector, her husband. He suddenly saw a duty from himself to her, aside from the mere feeding and clothing her. He felt a personal responsibility and an actual interest in her. Out of the whole world now, he was the only one she could look to for help. It gave him a feeling of possession that was new and almost seemed pleasant. He forgot entirely the errand that had made him come to search for Marcia in the first place, and the two men who were probably at that moment preparing to go to his house according to their invitation. He forgot everything but Marcia, and strode into the purpley-blue shadows of the wood and stopped to listen. The hush there seemed intense. There were no echoes lingering of flying feet down that pine-padded pathway of the Isle of the Woods. It was long since he had had time to wander in the woods, and he wondered at their silence. So much whispering above, the sky so far away, the breeze so quiet, the bird notes so subdued, it seemed almost uncanny. He had not remembered that it was thus in the woods. It struck him in passing that here would be a good place to bring his pain some day when he had time to face it again and wished to be alone with it. He took his hat in his hand and stepped firmly into the vast solemnity as if he had entered a great church when the service was going on, on an errand of life and death that gave excuse for profaning the holy silence. He went a few paces and stopped again, listening. Was that a long-drawn sighing breath he heard, or only the wind soughing through the waving tassels overhead? He summoned his voice to call. It seemed a great effort and sounded weak and feeble under the grandeur of the vaulted green dome. Marcia, he called, and Marcia, realizing as he did so that it was the first time he had called her by her name or sought after her in any way. He had always said you to her, or child, or spoken of her in company as Mrs. Spafford, a strange and far-off mythical person whose very intangibility had separated her from himself immeasurably. He went further into the forest, called again and yet again, 
and stood to listen. All was still about him, but in the far distance he heard the faint report of a gun. With a new thought of danger coming to mind, he hurried further into the shadows. The gun sounded again more clearly. He shuddered involuntarily and looked about in all directions, hoping to see the gleam of her gown. It was not likely there were any wild beasts about these parts, so near the town, and yet they had been seen occasionally, a stray fox or even a bear, and the sun was certainly very low. He glanced back, and the low line of the horizon gleamed the gold of intensified shining that is the sun's farewell for the night. The gun again! Stray shots had been known to kill people wandering in the forest. He was growing nervous as a woman now, and went this way and that calling, but still no answer came. He began to think he was not near the clump of pines of which Miranda spoke, and went a little to the right, and then turned to look back to where he had entered the wood, and there, almost at his feet, she lay. She slept as soundly as if she had been lying on a couch of velvet, one round white arm under her cheek. Her face was flushed with weeping, and her lashes still wet. Her tender, sensitive mouth still quivered slightly as she gave a long-drawn breath with a catch in it that seemed like a sob, and all her lovely dark hair floated about her as if it were spread upon a wave that upheld her. She was beautiful indeed as she lay there sleeping, and the man, thus suddenly come upon her, anxious and troubled and every nerve quivering, stopped, awed with the beauty of her, as if she had been some heavenly being suddenly confronting him. He stepped softly to her side, and bending down, observed her, first anxiously, to make sure she was alive and safe, then searchingly, as though he would know every detail of the picture there before him, because it was his, and he not only had a right but a duty to possess it, and to care for it. She might have been a statue or a painting, as he looked upon her, and noted the lovely curve of her flushed cheek, but when his eyes reached the firm little brown hand and the slender finger on which gleamed the wedding ring that was not really hers, something pathetic in the tear-wet lashes and the whole sorrowful, beautiful figure touched him with a great tenderness, and he stooped down gently and put his arm about her. "'Marcia, child!' he said in a low, almost crooning voice, as one might wake a baby from its sleep. "'Marcia, open your eyes, child, and tell me if you are all right.' At first she only stirred uneasily and slept on, the sleep of utter exhaustion. But he raised her, and, sitting down beside her, put her head upon his shoulder, speaking gently. Then Marcia opened her eyes bewildered, and with a start sprang back and looked at David, as though she would be sure it was he and not that other dreadful man from whom she had fled. "'Why, child, what's the matter?' said David, brushing her hair back from her face. Bewildered still, Marcia scarcely knew him. His voice was so strangely sweet and sympathetic. The tears were coming back, but she could not stop them. She made one effort to control herself and speak, but her lips quivered a moment, and then the floodgates opened again, and she covered her face with her hands and shook with sobs. How could she tell David what a dreadful thing had happened, 
now when he was kinder to her than he had ever thought of being before he would grow grave and stern when she had told him and she could not bear that he would likely blame her too and how could she endure more but he drew her to him again and laid her head against his coat trying to smooth her hair with unaccustomed passes of his hand by and by the tears subsided and she could control herself again she hushed her sobs and drew back a little from the comforting rough coat where she had lain indeed indeed i could not help it david she faltered trying to smile like a bit of rainbow through the rain i know you couldn't child his answer was wonderfully kind and his eyes smiled at her as they had never done before her heart gave a leap of astonishment and fluttered with gladness over it it was so good to have david care she had not known how much she wanted him to speak to her as if he saw her and thought a little about her and now what was it remember i do not know tell me quick for it is growing late and damp and you will take cold out here in the woods with that thin frock on you are chilly already i better go at once she said reservedly willing to put off the telling as long as possible peradventure to avoid it altogether no child he said firmly drawing her back again beside him you must rest a minute yet before taking that long walk you are weary and excited and besides it will do you good to tell me what made you run off up here are you homesick he scanned her face anxiously he began to fear with sudden compunction that the sacrifice he had accepted so easily had been too much for the victim and it suddenly began to be a great comfort to him to have marcia with him to help him hide his sorrow from the world he did not know before that he cared i was frightened she said with drooping lashes she was trying to keep her lips and fingers from trembling for she feared greatly to tell him all but though the woods were growing dusky he saw the fluttering little fingers and gathered them firmly in his own now child he said in that tone that even his aunts obeyed tell me all what frightened you and why did you come up here away from everybody instead of calling for help brought to bay she lifted her beautiful eyes to his face and told him briefly the story beginning with the night when she had first met harry temple she said as little about music as possible because she feared that the mention of the piano might be painful to david but she made the whole matter quite plain in a few words so that david could readily fill in between the lines scoundrel he murmured clenching his fists he ought to be strung up then quite gently again poor child how frightened you must have been you did right to run away but it was a dangerous thing to run out here why he might have followed you oh said marcia turning pale i never thought of that i only wanted to get away from everybody it seemed so dreadful i did not want anybody to know i did not want you to know i wanted to run away and hide and never come back she covered her face with her hands and shuddered david thought the tears were coming back again child child he said gently 
You must not talk that way. What would I do if you did that? And he laid his hand softly upon the bowed head. It was the first time that anything like a personal talk had passed between them, and Marcia felt a thrill of delight at his words. It was like heavenly comfort to her wounded spirit. She stole a shy look at him under her lashes and wished she dared say something, but no words came. They sat for a moment in silence, each feeling a sort of comforting sense of the other's presence, and each clasping the hand of the other with clinging pressure, yet neither fully aware of the fact. The last rays of the sun which had been lying for a while at their feet upon the pine needles suddenly slipped away unperceived, and behold, the world was in gloom, and the place where the two sat was almost utterly dark. David became aware of it first, and with sudden remembrance of his expected guests, he started in dismay. Child, said he, but he did not let go of her hand, nor forget to put the tenderness in his voice. The sun has gone down, and here have I been forgetting what I came to tell you in the astonishment over what you had to tell me. We must hurry and get back. We have guests tonight for supper, two gentlemen, very distinguished in their lines of work. We have business together, and I must make haste. I doubt not they are at the house already, and what they think of me I cannot tell. Let us hurry as fast as possible. Oh, David, she said in dismay, and you had to come out here after me and have stayed so long. What a foolish girl I have been, and what a mess I have made. They will perhaps be angry and go away, and I will be to blame. I am afraid you can never forgive me. Don't worry, child, he said pleasantly. It couldn't be helped, you know, and it is in no wise your fault. I am only sorry that these two gentlemen will delay me in the pleasure of hunting up that scoundrel of a temple, and suggesting that he leave town by the early morning stage. I should like to give him what Miranda suggested, a good wallopin, but perhaps that would be undignified. He laughed as he said it, a hearty laugh with a ring to it like his old self. Marcia felt happy at the sound. How wonderful it would be if he would be like that to her all the time. Her heart swelled with the great thought of it. He helped her to her feet, and taking her hand, led her out to the open field where they could walk faster. As he walked, he told her about Miranda waiting for him behind the currant bushes. They laughed together and made the way seem short. It was quite dark now, with the faded moon trembling feebly in the west, as though it meant to retire early, and wished they would hurry home while she held her light for them. David had drawn Marcia's arm within his, and then, noticing that her dress was thin, he pulled off his coat and put it firmly about her, despite her protest that she did not need it. And so, warmed, comforted, and cheered, Marcia's feet hurried back over the path she had taken in such sorrow and fright a few hours before. When they could see the lights of the village twinkling close below them, David began to tell her about the two men who were to be their guests, if they were still waiting, and so interesting was his brief story of each that Marcia hardly knew they were at home before David was helping her over their own back fence. Oh, David, there seems to be a light in the kitchen. T 
do you suppose they have gone in and are getting their own supper? What shall I do with my hair? I cannot go in with it this way. How did that light get there? Here, said David, fumbling in his pocket, will this help you? And he brought out the shell comb he had picked up in the garden. By the light of the feeble old moon, David watched her coil the long wavy hair and stood to pass his criticism upon the effect before they should go in. They were just back of the tall sunflowers and talked in whispers. It was all so cheery and comradey and merry that Marcia hated to go in and have it over, for she could not feel that this sweet evening hour could last. Then they took hold of hands and swiftly, cautiously, stole up to the kitchen window and looked in. The door still stood open as both had left it that afternoon, and there seemed to be no one in the kitchen. A candle was burning on the high little shelf over the table, and the tea kettle was singing on the crane by the hearth, but the room was without occupant. Cautiously, looking questioningly at one another, they stole into the kitchen, each dreading lest the ants had come by chance and discovered their laps. There was a light in the front part of the house, and they could hear voices. Two men were earnestly discussing politics. They listened longer, but no other presence was revealed. David in pantomime outlined the course of action, and Marcia, understanding perfectly, flew up the back stairs as noiselessly as a mouse to make her toilet after her nap in the woods, while David, with much show and to-do of opening and shutting the wide-open kitchen door, walked obviously into the kitchen and hurried through to greet his guests, wondering, not suspecting in the least, what good angel had been there to let them in. Good fortune had favored Miranda. The neighbor had stayed longer than usual, perhaps in hopes of an invitation to stay to tea and share in the gingerbread she could smell being taken from the oven by Hannah, who occasionally varied her occupations by a turn at the culinary art. Hannah could make delicious gingerbread. Her grandmother had taught her when she was but a child. Miranda stole into the kitchen when Hannah's back was turned and picked over her berries so fast that when Hannah came into the pantry to set her gingerbread to cool, Miranda had nearly all her berries in the big yellow bowl ready to wash, and Hannah might conjecture if she pleased that Miranda had been some time picking them over. It is not stated just how thoroughly those berries were picked over, but Miranda cared little for that. Her mind was upon other things. The pantry window overlooked the hills and the woods. She could see if David and Marcia were coming back soon. She wanted to watch her play till the close, and had no fancy for having the curtain fall in the middle of the most exciting act, the rescue of the princess. But the talk in the sitting-room went on and on. By and by, Hannah Heath washed her hands, untied her apron, and taking her sunbonnet, slipped over to Anne Bertram's for a pattern of her new sleeve. Miranda took the opportunity to be off again. Swiftly down behind the currants she ran, and standing on the fence behind the corn, she looked off across the wheat, but no sign of anybody yet coming out of the woods was granted her. She stood so a long time. It was growing dusk. She wondered if Harry Temple had shut the front door when he went out. But then David went in that way, and he would have closed it, of course. 
Still, he went away in a hurry. Maybe it would be as well to go and look. She did not wish to be caught by her grandmother, so she stole along like a cat close to the dark berry bushes, and the gathering dusk hid her well. She thought she could see from the front of the fence whether the door looked as if it were closed. But there were people coming up the street. She would wait till they had passed before she looked over the fence. They were two men coming, slowly and in earnest conversation upon some deeply interesting theme. Each carried a heavy carpet bag, and they walked wearily, as if their business were nearly over for the day, and they were coming to a place of rest. This must be the house, I think, said one. He said it was exactly opposite the seceder church. That's the church, I believe. I was here once before. There doesn't seem to be a light in the house, said the other, looking up to the windows over the street. Are you sure? Brother Spafford said he was coming directly home to let his wife know of our arrival. A little strange there's no light yet, for it is quite dark now, but I am sure this must be the house. Maybe they are all in the kitchen, and not expecting us quite so soon. Let us try, anyhow, said the other, setting down his carpet-bag on the stoop and lifting the big brass knocker. Miranda stood still debating but a moment. The situation was made plain to her in an instant. Not for nothing had she stood at Grandma Heath's elbow for years, watching the movements of her neighbors and interpreting exactly what they meant. Miranda's wits were sharpened for situations of all kinds. Miranda was ready and loyal to those she adored. Without further ado, she hastened to a sheltered spot she knew and climbed the picket fence which separated the Heath garden from the Spafford side yard. Before the brass knocker had sounded through the empty house the second time, Miranda had crossed the side porch, thrown her sunbonnet upon a chair in the dark kitchen, and was hastening with noisy, encouraging steps to the front door. She flung it wide open, saying in a breezy voice, Just wait till I get a light, won't you? The wind blew the candle out. There wasn't a particle of wind about that soft September night, but that made little difference to Miranda. She was part of a play, and she was acting her best. If her impromptu part was a little irregular, it was at least well meant, boldly and bravely presented. Miranda found a candle on the shelf, and, stooping to the smoldering fire upon the hearth, blew and coaxed it into flame enough to light it. "'This is Mr. Spafford's home, is it not?' questioned the old gentleman, whom Miranda had heard speak first on the sidewalk. "'Oh, yes, indeed,' said the girl, glibly. "'Just come in and set down. Here, let me take your hats. Just put your bags right there on the floor.' "'You are—are are you Mrs. Spafford?' hesitated the courtly old gentleman. "'Oh, landy sakes, no, I ain't her,' laughed Miranda, well pleased. "'Miss Spafford had just stepped out a bit when her husband come home.' and he's gone after her. You see, she didn't expect her husband home until late tonight. But you set down. They'll be home real soon now. They'd arter been here before this. I suppose she'd gone on further'n she thought she'd go when she stepped out. It's all right, said the other gentleman. No harm done, I'm sure. I hope we shan't inconvenience Mrs. Spafford any, coming so unexpectedly. 
No, indeedy, said the quick-witted Miranda. You can't catch Miss Spafford unprepared if you come in the middle of the night. She's always ready for company. Miranda's eyes shone. She felt she was getting on finely doing the honors. Well, that's very nice. I'm sure it makes one feel at home. I wonder now if she would mind if we were to go right up to our room and wash our hands. I feel so travel-stained. I'd like to be more presentable before we meet her, said the first gentleman, who looked very weary. But Miranda was not dashed. Why, that's all right. Course you can go right up. Just you set in the keepin' room a minute, while I run up and be sure the water pitcher's filled. I ain't quite sure about it. I won't be long. Miranda seated them in the parlor with great gusto, and hastened up the back stairs to investigate. She was not at all sure which room would be called the guest room, and whether the two strangers would have a room apiece, or occupy the same together. At least it would be safe to show them one till the mistress of the house returned. She peeped into Marcia's room, and knew it instinctively before she caught sight of a cameo brooch on the pincushion, and a rose-colored ribbon neatly folded lying on the foot of the bed where it had been forgotten. That question settled, she thought any other room would do, and chose the large front room across the hall with its high four-poster and the little ball fringe on the valance and canopy. Having lighted the candle which stood in a tall glass candlestick on the high chest of drawers, she hurried down to bid her guests come up. Then she hastened back into the kitchen and went to work with swift, skillful fingers. Her breath came quickly, and her cheeks grew red with the excitement of it all. It was like playing fairy. She would get supper for them and have everything all ready when the mistress came, so that there would be no bad breaks. She raked the fire and filled the tea kettle, swinging it from the crane. Then she searched where she thought such things should be, and found a tablecloth and set the table. Her hands trembled as she put out the sprigged china that was kept in the corner covered. Perhaps this was wrong, and she would be blamed for it, but at least it was what she would have done, she thought, if she were mistress of this house, and had two nice gentlemen come to stay to tea. It was not often that Grandmother Heath allowed her to handle her sprigged china, to be sure so Miranda felt the joy and daring of it all the more. Once a delicate cup slipped and rolled over on the table, and almost reached the edge. A little more, and it would have rolled off onto the floor, and been shivered into a dozen fragments. But Miranda spread her apron in front, and caught it fairly as it started, and then hugged it in fear and delight for a moment, as she might have done a baby that had been in danger. It was a great pleasure to her to set that table. In the first place, she was not doing it to order, but because she wanted to please and surprise someone whom she adored, and in the second place, it was an adventure. Miranda had longed for an adventure all her life, and now she thought it had come to her. When the table was set, it looked very pretty. She slipped into the pantry and searched out the stores. It was not hard to find all that was needed. Cold ham, cheese, pickles, seed cakes, gingerbread, fruit cake, preserves and jelly, bread and raised biscuit. Then she went down cellar and found the milk and cream and butter. She had just finished the table and set out the teapot and caddy of tea 
when she heard the two gentlemen coming down the stairs. They went into the parlor and sat down, remarking that their friend had a pleasant home, and then Miranda heard them plunge into a political discussion again, and she felt that they were safe for a while. She stole out into the dewy dark to see if there were yet signs of the homecomers. A screech-owl hooted across the night. She stood a while by the back fence looking out across the dark sea of whispering wheat. By and by she thought she heard subdued voices above the soft swish of the parting wheat, and by the light of the stars she saw them coming. Quick as a wink she slid over the fence into the heath backyard and crouched in her old place behind the currant bushes. So she saw them come up together, saw David help Marcia over the fence, and watched them till they had passed up the walk to the light of the kitchen door. Then swiftly she turned and glided to her own home, well knowing the reckoning that would be in store for her for this daring bit of recreation. There was about her, however, an air of triumphant joy as she entered. "'Where have you been to, Miranda Griscom, and what on earth you been up to now?' was the greeting she received as she lifted the latch of the old green kitchen door of her grandmother's house. Miranda knew that the worst was to come now, for her grandmother never mentioned the name of Griscom unless she meant business. It was a hated name to her because of the man who had broken the heart of her daughter. Grandma Heath always felt that Miranda was an out-and-out Griscom with not a streak of Heath about her. The Griscoms all had red hair. But Miranda lifted her chin high and felt like a princess in disguise. "'Been hunting hen's eggs down in the grass,' she said, taking the first excuse that came into her head. "'Is it time to get supper?' "'Hen's eggs? This time of night, and dark as pitch! Miranda Griscom, you can go up to your room and not come down till I call you.' It was a dire punishment, or would have been if Miranda had not had her head full of other things, for the neighbor had been asked to tea, and there would have been much to hear at the table. Besides, it was apparent that her disgrace was to be made public. However, Miranda did not care. She hastened to her little attic window, which looked down, as good fortune would have it, upon the dining-room windows of the Spafford house. With joy, Miranda observed that no one thought to draw down the shades, and she might sit and watch the supper served over the way, the supper she had prepared, and might think how delectable the doughnuts were, and let her mouth water over the currant jelly and the quince preserves, and pretend she was a guest, and forget the supper downstairs she was missing. End of chapter 15